am excited to share my conversation about leadership, the positive attributes of millennials, and how to be more intelligent with Dr. Megan Gerhardt. Megan is the Professor of Leadership and Development at Miami University, as well as the Director of Leadership Development for the Farmer School of Business, Co-Director of the Isaac and Oxley Center for Business Leadership, Founder of the Gerhardt Group, and a Gallup Certified Strengths Leadership Coach. I met Megan a few years ago when I was on a recruiting trip at my alma mater and have enjoyed staying engaged with her and the work she is doing on authentic leadership and navigating generational diversity in the workplace. Today, we dive into a lot of great content, including what it means to be gentelligent, a movement that Megan has started, and how different generations view leadership, and what Generation Z has in store for us. Take a peek. So Megan, thanks so much for joining me today. I know we um, met a few years ago through Miami University. I was a student there and um, had come back to recruit, and I've really been interested in all the work you've been doing around Gentelligence, leadership development. You've done um, some work with um, the organization I work with in leadership development, and I'm just really excited to have you today to share more about um, young professionals, the work you've done, um, especially with millennials, um, and then just understanding generations in the workplace. And was hoping maybe you could start um, by talking to us about your field of study. I mean, it's very, not only fascinating, but pretty timely as we have, um, I think, the most generations in the workplace that we've ever had with people retiring later and later. And now we've got um, the Gen Z coming up and starting to graduate. So could you just talk about um, how you decided to focus your career in leadership development and navigating generational difficulties? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my work in generational differences began over 10 years ago. I got a knock on my door from uh, someone in the dean's office who had gotten a call from a company that was searching for an expert on motivation, on leadership, on individual differences, who might be able to come talk to them about navigating, really at that time, how to lead millennials. So this was really when the initial sort of hesitation or concern about how different millennials might be than prior generations started to reach the headlines. And so I'm not entirely sure why they came knocking on my door, but I think it was because, you know, I was in my early 30s at the time, and so I was one of the younger faculty members there at the business school. And so given that a lot of my prior work had been on motivation and individual differences and leadership development, I think, you know, that made it a natural fit. So I was I was up for the challenge. So I said that I would be happy to, to give it a try. So I went and met with that organization. I did a talk for them uh, on the different generations in the workforce, the different experiences that might cause people to perceive and behave a little differently at work maybe than prior generations were used to. Uh, and actually that started what has been a pretty busy set of engagements around helping organizations try to navigate this. So I still meet with that same organization for their annual conference to talk about the same topic, although I've now added, as you said, Gen Z into the mix, as well as my more recent research and work on generational differences. So that's how I got started. It was just a knock on my door from somebody who thought 
it might be a good fit for me. And I just have become fascinated both on the academic research side, but more recently on how I can translate my work and the work of other people in our, our field to help managers and leaders not just survive generational differences, but really see them as an opportunity. Great. That's interesting that that's how it started um, with just a, you know, a role kind of basic inquiry. And I think as, um, as I've experienced, you know, being a millennial and being in the workforce for the past 11 or 12 years, um, there has been so much interest on our generation and why we act the way that we do. Why can't we maybe be a little different? I think that, you know, people see the good, but sometimes they see the bad and um, recognizing that and being aware of it um, is really helpful. And so from there then, um, kind of talk to you about your journey of you know, starting with this one organization um, and how that evolved into this whole concept you have around gentelligence and this thought leadership that you're doing. You know, how can people use that and um, you know, what is it? So gentelligence is a term that I created to really explain the idea of being culturally competent specifically towards understanding generational diversity. So one of the things that I found fascinating as I really sunk my teeth into this research was that generational differences are not commonly viewed as a type of diversity, which is very interesting in that our, our challenge with it is that new generations, the younger generations are different than what we've experienced. They can be a little bit confusing, sometimes frustrating. And that's the same dynamic we see with any type of diversity. We certainly saw it with men and women working together, you know, decades ago for the first time. And so I thought, well, what a great lens to help people understand that just like any other form of diversity, you're going to have challenges, but that also means you're going to have amazing opportunities if you can understand uh, how, to, how to frame it that way. And so I really wanted to come up with a term I feel like the news and headlines are so saturated about generational differences and in usually in a very negative way. Uh, so that was also something that I was struck with over and over again in meeting with organizations, with you know, taking a look at what was being said. My experience, as you said, I'm a, a professor at Miami University. I've been there for 16 years now as of this year. Um, so I've seen the millennials come and now go. So we just this year graduated our first class of officially Generation Z students. So our Gen Zs were just our graduates that, that uh, went through commencement this past weekend. And, and so I've, I've sort of seen the one flood of millennials and now Gen Z, and my experience experience with them has been remarkably different than what the headlines seem to be interested in focusing upon, which is this fairly negative lens about entitlement and laziness and things that I have not found to be true with the millennial generation nor Gen Z. I think a lot of that is a stereotype, but I also think it comes with the fact that whatever we don't understand, we tend to view as a threat and we tend to view as wrong because it's different. And again, that's not any any change from typical sort of concerns and, and views on diversity. So the gentelligence term came from the idea that if you are smart about how you not only view generational differences, but how you choose to understand and interpret behavior, we're sitting on a really tremendous opportunity. Five generations in the workforce, more, as you said, than we've ever had before. 
every generation has perspectives and experiences that give them diversity of thought. And that's what we crave in the workplace, particularly in the 21st century. You know, success is new ideas, it's innovation, it's creativity, all those things we work so hard to find. We really do have the potential for that at our fingertips if we choose to look at it that way. So, you know, it's been a really interesting journey for me to help change the lens of professionals around how they view uh, generational differences. And the word gentelligence is really about being curious about different generations, about viewing the opportunities that are there, about finding ways to bring people together, but also harness what makes them different. Interesting. I wrote down a number of, of things because this is really educational for me as well, but couple of things that you pointed out that I wanted to, to highlight or maybe dig into a little bit more. Um, you know, first, generational differences not being traditionally viewed as a type of diversity. I think, you know, we think about lots of other forms of diversity and really encouraging that and encouraging a balance of opinions. But at the same time, um, I think generational differences, as you said, um, are definitely not viewed as a type of diversity or maybe as something positive. And then kind of the negative slant, I think, that has really been in the media. And I think sometimes that's um, just because negative stories tend to sell better. Um, that tends to be more um, enticing for people to read and to kind of latch onto than something that's positive. Um, but have you seen in your work a lot of positive progress as people learn more about this being a type of diversity and understanding behaviors on both sides, you know, for people who are in older generations to better understand millennials, but for millennials to also understand their Gen X and their baby boomer counterparts, have you seen a lot of positive progress with that? I wouldn't say I've seen a lot of positive progress. The thing I'm most optimistic about is actually the coverage we've seen on Generation Z. So to date, I've seen overwhelmingly positive coverage about Generation Z, about sort of highlighting how they are more open to diversity, highlighting how they have navigated growing up during the recession. And we're being speculative about the workplace behaviors and attitudes that will come from that. I think we know some, we know a little bit. A lot of what I've seen, I think, is premature. I think it's a little early to say, but... We're seeing some interesting trends with Gen Z, and, and I haven't yet seen Gen Z subjected to the kind of negative lens that the millennials got from the very beginning. So I talk in, I'm writing a book right now on Gentelligence, and one of my first chapters talks about this really horrible 60-minute segment that was done, uh, I think it was 2008, 2009, something like that, where it was entitled The Millennials Are Coming you know, sort of like it was a plague. Uh, and, and that really, to me, represents how we greeted millennials as this sort of invader of what was right and, and how things should be done. Uh, and I don't see us doing that to Gen Z. So that's the most positive thing I'm, I'm seeing. I, every weekend, when I go through, you know, the newspaper, I'm seeing generation trashing. Uh, the New York Times has run things on Gen X. Uh, in the last couple weeks, there was a new thing about um, baby boomers that came out. And that's what I really would like to try to shift is 
you know, this idea that it's not really productive or acceptable to be stereotyping by generation. Yes, there's interesting diversity that comes from growing up in a different time, uh, in a different society, a different culture. And I think that's really interesting. But for some reason, we've made it okay to, you know, be a little bit derogatory about Gen X or about millennials uh, because they're different. Uh, and I don't think that boomers and traditionals are safe from it either. I mean, I do think ageism, uh, when it comes to older ages and reverse ageism, when it comes to sort of generation shaming, uh, seems to be very trendy. As you said, it certainly does sell articles because when you're attacking an entire generation, people read those articles either to respond positively or negatively. Uh, but I don't think it's productive. I don't think we would allow it with any other kind of diversity. And so I'm surprised uh, that it, it's something that we think is okay in terms of generation. So uh, I hope we're making some inroads. I really hope with this intelligence movement, which is what I'm calling it and what I'm hoping for, that we can reverse the direction and the perspective that, that organizations take on it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I think it's going to be helpful. I've seen a lot of your work come out recently with some different articles. You had one about the Super Bowl coaches, um, you know, two, two very different generations, two very different styles of leaders, which was interesting. And then um, your TEDx talk that you did, um, where you talked about some of the positive attributes of millennials. You know, there there was you know, kind of starting off with that negative stereotype, but then bringing up, oh, here were some things that were really po- that are really positive about this group. And I've you know been their professor. I've taught this generation now, kind of through the life cycle. Um, you know, again, just not to not to harp on millennials, but they have gotten kind of gotten a bad rap. In your experience, what are some of the positive things that they bring? I have really enjoyed, and, you know, I think what really sticks with people is is stories, right? So as you said, in my TEDx and some of my articles I've shared, every day I work with millennials and now Gen Z. I direct our Center for Business Leadership uh, at the Farmer School of Business. I'm also now Director of Leadership Development, and I don't do that alone. I have two faculty co-directors, but I also really view my students as, leaders and as colleagues in a lot of the work that's done in those areas. And to me, you know, I have some experience, I have knowledge, I have organizational wisdom, but there's a lot of things that I don't know. And when you have the ability to tap into really intelligent, energetic talent that sees things potentially a little different than you do, why wouldn't you do that, right? So for the example, for the millennials, one of the stories I share in the TED Talk was, I really wanted to create something uh, in terms of a leadership organization that was going to be relevant and interesting and valuable to millennials, right? They were the audience. And, and so what better source than to sit down and talk to the millennials and say, what would this look like? Here's what I want to accomplish. How would you do it? And that's a very intelligent question, right? How would you do it? Here's what I'm hoping for. Here's my vision. How would you accomplish it? Now, that doesn't mean do it exactly the way that a 21-year-old says it should be done. And I think that's a common misperception. It means ask, 
and be open to the fact that there might be ideas or perspectives that are incredibly valuable that you haven't thought about yet because you didn't grow up at that time or with access to the same things. And so what ends up happening, I, I talk about gen intelligence being a two-way street. So it doesn't just mean listen to your millennials and your Gen Zs because you know they know more than you do. That's not what it means. It means be curious about what you don't know, what they see that you don't see. So I ask the question, right? How would you bring this organization into the 21st century? How would you reach uh, uh, people like yourselves in a way that we're not currently doing? You know, what kinds of learning and development would you be interested in? And then by asking, you open up this two-way street where now they feel heard, they feel appreciated, they feel important. And you can mock that and say, oh, the special millennials, they need to feel important. We all want to feel important. It's just that the millennials have grown up feeling like they have the right to ask for it and speak up. Uh, and they want to do something meaningful. And so when their input is requested, then I can hear those ideas and I can give them feedback and say, well, that's really interesting. You know, if we did that, here are some challenges that I anticipate we would face. So what would we do about those? Right. So suddenly I'm able to mentor them. I'm able to give them feedback. I'm able to teach them in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been able to reach them before if they felt like I was talking down to them or didn't value their opinion. So it creates this great dynamic, this great exchange. And I've learned so much. Uh, a lot of it is, of course, in the area of technology and social media, which is where we see the most attention, but not all of it. Um, and so to me, Gentelligence is allowing that connection. My research, my academic research on this has found particularly that millennials really value connection with a leader in order to, to feel that person is credible and to feel they respect that person. And so what a better way to make a connection than to ask and value their input and not just assume that because they're younger, they must not know as much as you do. That, that's almost never a correct assumption. And I think when the when we first talked about this, one of the things you had mentioned what that was a big difference is other generations, while everyone wants to feel important, um, I just want to emphasize this, that the millennials are the first with kind of the culture they were raised in to feel like, hey, I can come right out of school and I should be, I should be heard. You know, I don't need to kind of sit and wait on the sidelines for 10 years and, you know, earn that credibility. I've got ideas and... I've been encouraged to share them my whole life, so why not continue to do that? What's wrong with that? And not seeing that other generations didn't necessarily experience that. So while millennials think they're being helpful and excited and passionate and energetic, other generations may see that as very presumptive. Correct. And I think the reason that I view it as a two-way street is because while we have a lot to learn from millennials and Gen Z, there's a lot they don't know. And it's not just, you know, the things about, you know, how an organization works or, you know, subject matter expertise. Of course, those are, are things that they need to learn and they need to experience. Uh, but one of the very early stages of, of diversity awareness and diversity sensitivity is this awareness that not everybody sees things the way that you do. 
and it sounds kind of silly, but when you grow up with people that are like you, and in this case, we're talking about same age cohort, it's hard to remember or realize that other people have had different experiences. That's a pretty, you know, deep thing to, to take in. And so I had a light bulb on this maybe seven or eight years ago. I was doing a similar workshop with my students that I often do for companies, and I was sharing with them um, different scenarios that, that uh, older and younger generations may interpret differently. And we navigated to kind of an, a scenario about, you know, you're taking an exam and you aren't pleased with your grade, you think the exam was confusing, what would you do next? And almost across the board, the millennial response was I would go in and talk to that professor. I would go in, sometimes they would say I would go in and ask what I did wrong, but most of the time the honest answer was I would go in and try to negotiate for a better grade, or I would argue that the test was confusing or was not representative or that there were different answers. And that's not right or wrong. That's a reality. Being a professor, I can tell you that that happens more than, than you might think. And so I just asked them, I said, okay, I agree that that's a behavior that we see a lot. What percentage of your parents do you think behaved in that way or, or that would be their reaction to that when they were a college student? And they guessed 90%. And so they thought 90% of their parents, when getting a grade they were unhappy with or taking a test they didn't think was valid, would have gone in and negotiated or argued with a professor. And I just, it was a literal light bulb where I thought, oh, okay, they don't understand how differently they're behaving, right? Because I'm guessing the number was probably closer to 9% of their parents. So I actually had to take out their phones and text and ask because the behavior isn't right or wrong. It's just different. So if they come in and try to negotiate with me, because I do what I do, I understand why they're doing it. They're being very proactive. They're under a lot of pressure. Uh, there's a lot of competition. And so they have to really try to get the best outcome they can. And they've sort of been socialized that you go after what you want and you stick up for yourself. But if you don't realize that the person sitting on the other side of the desk never did that, or it wasn't socially acceptable in their generation to push back on an authority figure, you wouldn't realize that your behavior might have an impression or uh, get a reaction from them that might be negative, right? And so I can interpret that behavior as, as where, you know, why, why they're doing what they're doing makes sense. But, you know, somebody who's maybe a decade or two older than me who doesn't do the research or the work that I do would view that as entitled and as, you know, inappropriate. And that might be a cost that the millennials aren't willing to pay had they known that it might be interpreted that way. But where it really came back to was they didn't realize that what they were doing was so different. They were just not you know, able to see that because no one had ever discussed it with them. So that's why I say, you know, gentelligence means talking about how people from different generations might see a behavior or an event differently just because of the time uh, and, and context that they grew up in. 
Yeah. So I kind of want to talk about that, all of that, then in the context of leadership, because we're going to have, you know, more and more um, Gen Xers and millennials as leaders and organizations, um, you know, especially in the next few years. And so how, you know, you, you do, you've done some different corporate consulting, you do workshops um, with your students. And so as you have done these leadership development programs then, and as you've worked with these generations, are there leadership characteristics that transcend generations, transcend strengths and personalities and, you know, the different gifts that each person has that you'd say great leaders, you know, really need to learn these skills, whether that's understanding diversity or understanding people or other things like that. What are your findings or recommendations? Yeah, this was something I talked about in the the Super Bowl article about the leadership reality of generational differences. So I think it's important to start by saying every single person, regardless of generation, wants to feel like they're doing meaningful work and that their contribution is valuable. There are not generational differences in that. There's plenty of research to back up that those are sort of universal motivations for people. Where the differences occur, and this is why I say I don't like using generations as a stereotype, I like using them as a lens. So if I use generational identity as a lens, and I'm talking about a baby boomer who is 60 or 65 and is in the latter part of their career, what does it mean to do meaningful work? What does it mean to have a valuable contribution? The answer to that is different. So a baby boomer who has worked in an organization for 30 years has the opportunity to contribute in a really valuable and meaningful way as a mentor. Uh, Chip Conley just wrote a great book called Wisdom at Work where he talks about the idea of a modern elder and the idea of an elder being someone with a lot of experience who's willing to guide. And so as a leader, let's say that I'm a 40-year-old leader, a Gen Xer that wants to make sure that I'm able to connect with someone older that I'm leading, which will be the reality or is the reality for a lot of our, our Gen X um, employees right now, it's recognizing that you're not going to talk down to that person who's been there longer than you. You're not going to treat them the same way that you would treat an employee who you know is new or needs your guidance on specific tasks or, or things like that. Their needs are potentially different in terms of, of what it takes to help them feel like they are making valuable contributions. And so if we talk about leading up, so the idea of how would a millennial lead a Gen Xer or a Gen Xer lead a baby boomer, it's all about realizing that admitting that you would be able to use help, uh, you know, the idea of vulnerability or the idea of saying, hey, I'm not sure how to handle this problem because I've not experienced this before. Do you have any advice or have you seen this before? Or what would you do? Again, it's just like asking a millennial, how would you accomplish this task? You don't necessarily take that blindly, but the act of asking and being open to the answer, because there's a lot of wisdom there that we would want to take advantage of, 
is not a sign of weakness for a leader. So I think that's my big lesson in terms of leading up is asking for input, asking for help uh, is not a sign that you aren't competent. It's actually a great sign of confidence on the side of a leader, right? It's very much about realizing that empowering your employees, younger or older, is a win-win, right? It allows you to gain respect. It allows you to motivate those people. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't know how to do it. It means you're confident enough to ask for other perspectives. So I think anyone leading up, asking for advice, asking for new perspectives, asking uh, for you know, knowledge and experience, that's absolutely the best strategy. Because if someone gives you advice, they want to help you be successful as a result. Uh, I think when you're talking about older employees leading younger ones, it goes back to, to the conversation we had earlier about, again, asking. Meaningful work for a 22-year-old today is not what meaningful work for a 22-year-old looked like 20 or 30 or 40 years ago because they've had many more experiences. They have access to a lot more knowledge and information because of technology. So just asking, you know, what they think, how they would do it, and then using that as an opening to help guide them and mentor them helps them feel like their contribution is meaningful and that they're a valuable perspective in the organization. And I think those are leadership universals. So your approach might be different, the behavior might be different, but the reason behind the behavior is, is the same, to make people feel valuable and, and meaningful. It almost sounds like, as you described, um, both some of the attributes of, of this, you know, asking, vulnerability, confidence, and you know, empowering people, um, another word that came to mind to, for me was humility and being more of a humble leader to say, you know, I'm confident enough to know what I don't know and I don't have all the answers, but I'm going, I'm humble enough to ask the questions or recognize um, when I should bring someone else in. And I think humility is an important attribute in, in leaders as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I talk about in my courses quite a bit is the greatest misperception about leadership is that you're supposed to know everything and have it all figured out. I can't think of a leader I've had that I've respected more because he or she seemed to know everything. I think we tend to dislike it. We know that no one can know everything. No one has had every experience. And so someone who pretends that they have or acts like they don't need help, that is not something that people respect. That doesn't build credibility because it's not seen as being honest. It's not seen as being authentic. So I am a very strength-based person. I do a lot of strength-based leadership work. And one of the big things about strength-based development and authentic leadership is being very aware of what you do well and being very honest and open about what you don't do well. And, and when you're able to do that, it shows people that you are being real. It shows them that you are human, that you make mistakes, that there's things that either aren't a talent for you, they're not a strength. It, it very much reflects that you're self-aware. And if you're 30 years old and you have the privilege to be leading people who are decades older than you, that's amazing and that's wonderful and you should be very confident that you were put in that position for a reason. 
but you should also realize that acting like you know more or have had all of the experience that someone who's 50 or 60 or 70 years old has had is just ridiculous, right? No one would expect you to have that. Nobody would think you would have that. And so you looking to those people who are older than you as partners and as people that should be asked to give their input, not make your decisions for you. That's your job when you're a leader. But I, I do think your, your choice of humility and saying, there's a lot of things I don't know. I would really love to, to hear what you think. You're going to gain credibility and respect, not just from the person you ask, but by other people who are looking and saying, wow, that person is open to input. They want to learn. That's probably why they're in that position, right? So really a, a huge eye-opener for a lot of younger people is realizing that being vulnerable and having humility doesn't mean you're respected less. It means you will be respected more. Yes, and I think it, it kind of can free you from the anxiety of feeling like you have to know it all. Um, I can think back to different experiences where um, you know, I had the opportunity to lead a team and there were people who had far more experience than I did. And at first, you know, being concerned of they're I'm probably doing something wrong and they know it. And I, what if they're laughing at me or they're thinking, you know, all these different things. And once I finally got to the point where it was engage them and ask them and get their opinion. And it's not, you know, they're not going to look down on you. They're going to appreciate it. Um, then that all that anxiety kind of goes away and the stress that comes with it goes away. But it's it's a learning process to get there. And I wish that I'd had the benefit of um, when I was at Miami of taking some of your classes and doing some of these workshops because I think it would have really helped me personally. And I know that um, it's helped other people in our organization who have gone through that class and um, I'm sure students as well. The earlier you can hear those messages and then have some opportunities to be in that situation, I think is really important. Yeah, and I think it is a good piece of information, particularly if you have grown up feeling like you needed to accomplish more than other people at that age, you know, in prior generations, having that sort of pressure and the responsibility, but also the privilege, you know, not thinking that means you have to have it all figured out. And I do think that's, it's really helped me in my own career. You know, I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, without me realizing it, you know, I have, have worked somewhere for 15 or 16 years now um, and have become a senior person. And I love asking for advice. I think there's no better way to form partnerships. There's no better way to learn. I have never met a person that I asked for advice who thought less of me because I asked. That's just not something that you see, and it, it, it's it's a habit, right? It's something you can learn to do when you're confused, or even if you think you have the answer, running your ideas past a few people to see what their reactions might be, you know, is a great way to empower people, right? I always say asking for help gives people an opening, because if you know how to do everything, what do you need them for? That's not leadership, right? So asking for help and saying, these are some things that, you know, I'm not the best at. I'd love to have somebody jump in who would enjoy it or, or thinks this is in their wheelhouse. You know, what a great way to, to form some partnerships and, and get people to be invested in not only helping you succeed, but helping your organization succeed. 
that's that's great advice um, and a great habit. I thanks for for sharing that. Um, I'd like to pivot real quick um, as you know we're getting ready to to wrap up, and we had talked a little bit about Gen Z at the beginning, um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your observations of them, um, of the students that you've had so far. I know that the first class just graduated, um, so you've only seen a slice of them. Um, but as you've seen this next generation, what are your observations of them? And how do you hope that they will be welcomed into the workforce? So for the first question, my observations of them, I'll integrate my personal experience as well as I think I've read just about every book that, that's been written so far on Gen Z. A lot of that research has, was done when Gen Z were, were teenagers, right? Which is why I said I think it's a little premature. But my prediction based on all of those pieces put together is I think Gen Z is going to be really, I, I think there's going to be two different paths that we're going to see, which is going to be very interesting. I think there's an element of Gen Zers who are going to be conservative. I think, you know, we're still speculating what effect growing up during the recession uh, and the housing crisis and all of those things will have on Gen Z. And I've heard people debate, well, you know, Gen Zers don't remember that, right? They were little, they were tiny kids, but they may not remember that, but they might remember having to move, right? Or having, mm -hmm somebody in their family lose a job and their lifestyle having to change or their college choices being different because, you know, we decided an in-state college or a community college or something might, might be a better choice or a safer choice. So I do think we will see and are seeing a bit more of a conservative path for one segment of Gen Z. Uh, we at the university level have seen students being much more proactive about internships, not just between junior and senior year, which is what happened you know, over the last 10 to 15 years, but now feeling like they need to lock down an internship even after freshman year so that they will have it for multiple years and pretty much be guaranteed a job, a good solid job when they graduate. Uh, so I think sort of the experimental um, approach, the risk-taking approach that millennials were able to take because the economy was good for most of them, not the, the younger ones, um, where they sort of didn't want to settle and they wanted to see what was out there. I think some segment of Gen Z has either heard the lesson from their parents that you want to get in with a really stable organization early and, and find a path that's going to be dependable. And, and we're seeing that with multiple internships, with students taking job offers, you know, in September or October of their senior year so that they don't have to worry about that. Then I think there's an entirely different segment that's fascinating, which is those who are really embracing the gig economy. So I've seen two different, very different trends in Gen Z. So the gig economy of what does it even mean to have a career in, in 2019? Right. The fact that I don't have to pick one place or one occupation that maybe I will intern and get a job at a you know, consulting firm. But I also have this side gig where I'm running my own website or I'm starting a business or I'm an Uber driver or I'm 
bought a rental property and I have an Airbnb, right? So that is going to unfold beneath our feet, right? If we do this podcast again in, in five or 10 years, the idea of what does a career mean for somebody who's in their 20s is fascinating right now, right? You've heard them say, we're educating kids for, for jobs that don't exist yet. And that's entirely true, right? They could be a YouTuber. And we used to laugh about that being a job. That's what my 13-year-old wants to be, a gamer or a YouTuber. Those are real jobs, <laughs> right? And so they understand that in a way that we don't. And so I think for Gen Z, we're going to see two very different elements. And I am actually seeing Gen Z have some similarities to my generation, Gen X, in that, you know, I want to figure it out and do it in a way that works for me. Um, and I think the parallels between Gen X and Gen Z might be the next subject of, of an article or some research that I do. I haven't seen that written about yet, but I, I do see some, some similarities there. So in terms of what to expect from Gen Z, those are my predictions. You can take those for what they're worth. Um, and in terms of how we greet them, I talked about this in my, my recent Business Insider article, is that's largely going to be on millennials, right? And so what I'm hoping is that they put out the welcome mat in response to the fact that that was not what we did for them. So I hope that they're much more open to this diversity of thought and, you know, find it fascinating and interesting the way that I do, that we can welcome a whole new generation of talent who might open up our way of thinking and, and help us solve problems in a way that, that we haven't before. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. And getting ready to go uh, meet our interns this week um, who are all Gen Zers. And so I've been jotting down a lot of notes because this is helpful as I meet them. And I've always felt like I'm, oh, I'm young and I'm one of them. And now I'm realizing as I approach my, my mid-30s that I'm really not. And um, that you know, the idea of being a YouTuber or an influencer as a career is is lost on me. I see it happening, but it's it is a foreign thing. So um, this will be very helpful as I get to meet them and talk to them this week. I'm really excited to do that. Um, yeah, and I think I think one of the things I guess maybe my last piece of advice is you know I feel that way about Instagram because I understand Facebook. I don't understand Instagram. And so I was just really honest. I'm, you know, I'm working on this Gentelligence book, and one of the things that's important is, of course, a platform and an audience. And so I reached out to my current students, so this would be Gen Z, and I said, how and why would I use Instagram to build a professional platform for my work? I don't understand it. Like, what's it for? How do you use it? And they were fantastic. They were excited to teach me. Um, I have a student, uh, Patrick, who agreed or offered to be sort of my digital media uh, mentor guru uh, this summer and help me figure out, you know, put my brand and my work out there and reach new people and help me launch my Instagram page. And uh, at Megan Gerhart, Gentelligence is, is what he named it. So. You know, again, what a great opportunity for me and for him, right? It's, it's a partnership, and it can help help us understand things we, we don't understand already. Yeah, well, and it's a way, I think, to um, for you to gain, um, as you know, as a thought leader in this area, to really put your brand out there, and you don't have to go through, 
I think the steps that people did 20 or 30 years ago where it's a lot of work to get press and publicity and obviously you still have to put in all the research and the writing, but you're connecting with people in a very direct way. I think with social media, you don't have to go through um, traditional media or get earned media as much. You still, I mean, would from a credibility standpoint, but it's very interesting how you can just directly reach millions or billions of people through social media um, and how helpful to have people because I have no I, I have no idea how to use it either. Um, but <laughs> I did follow you. I followed Savvy Professional on uh, Savvy Young Professional on on Instagram. Oh well, thank you. I might have to <laughs> to reach out and get this Patrick um, gentleman to to help me too because yeah, I have I I see it. I can see other people do it, but um, the the strategy and the algorithms and all of it are lost on me. Um, so, um, yeah, someone, someone like that would be very helpful, um, to me as well, who, you know, saw Instagram, I kind of get it, but I, I am not an Instagram guru and don't even ask me about Snapchat. I don't even know if that's still a thing. Um, so I'm really, yeah, feel like I'm really aging way, myself. Sure. Yeah. I'll send them your way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of to wrap that up then, um, obviously you've long before Instagram, you've, you've established yourself as a thought leader in leadership and um, this intelligence movement. Um, but what are some things that you would say um, have really contributed to your success? Was it the luck of getting the knock on the door and the right timing? Um, was it a combination, obviously, of you know all your your hard work and the lens and you've know, seen this opportunity, or what if or something else? So I honestly think for me it has been this self-awareness that we talked about earlier. I think really focusing on what I believe I do well. I am an idea person. I love connecting things from different fields, you know, an idea from one field, an idea from another field, and then you come up with something brand new, which is really what intelligence is, diversity, uh, best practices applied to generational differences. I have paid a lot of attention to the work that energizes me and the work that drains me. So I do a workshop on this as well. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a deep concept, but it has been very profound in my career. So, for example, I've really focused on what is my mission or as Simon Sinek would call it, what's your why? And my why is to create interesting conversations that change how people think. And so when I do workshops on value-based leadership, uh, I talk about how everything you do, you have to be able to connect the dots back to your purpose and your why. And so I don't take on a responsibility, a job, a workshop, uh, any, any sort of uh, commitment unless it's very clear to me how that fits what I believe my purpose is. And I really do practice what I preach on that. My core value is knowledge. Uh, so I, if I can't learn something from an opportunity or I don't see how people will be learning from me, I know that that will be draining. And I know it will give me less energy to do work in other areas of my life. So I love to work. I love to be busy. I think I have really stellar endurance. I'm in, in a way where I just, I enjoy it. I enjoy thinking. I enjoy working. Um, and I think that's very much because I stay in the lane that 
is aligned with what I believe um, I'm most talented at doing. And so, you know, I could teach all day long, every day and not get tired. Um, I love writing. I love, um, you know, all of the work that I've been doing in terms of, of trying to translate the work that I'm doing uh, for leaders and for managers out there. And so, you know, I think whatever I've been able to accomplish so far, I think is because I very much am aware of where my talent lies, where it doesn't, uh, what energizes me in terms of work. And I try to be really intentional about what I say yes to, because I think leadership is about what you say no to as much as it is about anything else. And so I don't apologize for turning things down anymore. Um, when I end up having to do something that isn't really aligned with what's important to me, it's exhausting. And then I have no work or no energy for the rest of my work. And so I honestly think if I look back and say, you know, how do you do the things that you do or, or, you know, what do you attribute success to? It really is in knowing who I am and what I love and trying to make sure that I add value in the places uh, where I'm most able to do so. So that, that really is what it is for me. Um, and I just try to be really honest. I try to be really transparent about, you know, why certain things are, are good for me to take on and why I have to say no to other things. And, and I think that's, that's really my best advice is to just take some time to think about what your values are, why you get out of bed in the morning and, you know, try to be purposeful about, about the work that you do and, and, carve out time to do what's important to you. I love that. I love that concept of the energy, you know, what energizes you and what drains you. Cause I think sometimes you can feel, at least I feel this way, compelled to say yes to something, even if you don't want to do it. And by doing that, you're going to not only drain yourself, you're not going to want to do it. You're not going to have the energy to do the things that are important. And so no one really wins, even if you say yes. Um, you know, even if whoever you say yes to probably isn't winning because they're not getting the best product. So, um, I love that the, the why, and then, you know, kind of knowing what energizes and what drains you. Um, that's great advice. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again so much to Dr. Gerhardt for joining me and sharing all of her research and experience with us. It was such a pleasure to have her. Also, thank you as always for listening to the Savvy and Professional Podcast. For more career and leadership tips for millennials, please make sure to check out my website, www.savvy-yp.com, and follow me on social media. Your feedback is always appreciated, so please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or share a comment on my website again at www.savvy-yp.com. Also, if you like what you've heard and think others would as well, help them by subscribing and sharing this podcast with them. Thanks again.